0: Welcome to Life Church. We are an X242 Community, a family on a mission to bring the life of Jesus to Warrington. We hope you're ready to hear what God has to say to you today through his word and by his spirit. Right, I'm gonna get my whiteboard back. I would like to say it's by popular demand, but literally nobody has demanded it. In fact, no one has even suggested it, let alone demanded it. (laughs) I just almost feel like um, unclothed without my uh, whiteboard to, to go to. So we're here, session two. The letters of John, which I've renamed for you for this series as the Epistles to the Ephesian Church by John the Elder, because as I went to some lengths to explain last week, this letter, while bearing the name of John, is to a congregation, and set very much in a context, a historical context. And just to help you see how unique this context is compared to the other works of the New Testament, I have a handy timeline for you there. Can you see that? Uh, Straining, straining your eyes. Right. This is where we might need to just utilize the whiteboard as well. So you have, I'm not going to go through them, but this grouping of writings of the New Testament from 50 A.D., all the way up to just before 70 AD and Jude. So that is the distribution there of the New Testament writings as they work up and they build up to what is a crescendo. The reason why it's a bit of a crescendo around 68, uh, for those of you who didn't come to my um, eschatology lectures, boo to you. Um, But something very, very dramatic happened around that time I'm going to put it there, 70 AD, the destruction of the Jewish temple, a war with uh, the Jewish people which began by Emperor Nero some years before, Nero had killed off Paul and then slightly later Peter, then it went up to 70. And then we had had this three and a half year period before, 70, and three and a half year period afterwards, which I went to some lengths to try and explain to you. That's your three and a halfs that you get from your halves of seven in the book of Daniel. We won't do that again. Um, But then you had this gap because really in the the history of what was going on in that part of the world, there was a, a, a resettlement that needed to go on because such was the intensity of that battle such was the significance of what went on in that war it was a while before um, the kind of the church certainly the, the, the jewish people had a massive reset at that point but then later on john is writing and he's now up in ephesus and the theological landscape has shifted so you've got none of the big hitters like peter around you haven't got Paul around. You've got the destruction of the temple that's happened some years previous to this. And in, into what was a bit of a vacuum of heresy for some, because the, the Judaizers had been the, the main heretics for the, for the church initially, you would now have this Gnostic heresy beginning to impress itself onto the church. And I explained something of what that Gnostic heresy was, Um, It doesn't really, you you don't particularly need to know the ins and outs of that. If you go onto YouTube and you type in Gnosticism, you will find many short accounts of what that heresy was about. Um, But it was a problem for John and he's need to write into this situation because he doesn't, he doesn't want the church to start to fall apart at this period of time. And he also starts speaking into what we're going to look at this evening, which is the term Antichrist, and we're going to read uh, about that, the term Antichrist, which only appears in John's works. It doesn't appear in Paul. It doesn't appear in the book of Revelation. Some people would like to make a connection between them. I think that's possible, plausible, but not necessary. But the Antichrist is mentioned as a term used by Paul, uh, sorry, used by John, but and the key thing about this is because he associates the heresy that was being brought into the church and had caused, we understand, probably a church split that, was, that happened before John had written this first letter. John sees this as not just as people getting a bad teaching about the person of Jesus. He saw something of the hands of the enemy himself at work in bringing division and untruth into the lives of believers that would set them down a different pathway, not just intellectually or philosophically about who Jesus was, but they would start to live their lives differently because agnosticism was around, based around your own personal enlightenment And for John, the heart of the Gospel was about Christ and laying down your life for one another. And he saw there was a separation and a sifting going on in the church right in front of their very eyes. And let me illustrate this to you through one of my son Tobias' favorite books by Julia Donaldson. It's called Tyrannosaurus Drip, and I said to Tobias, can I borrow your book? Tyrannosaurus Drip, for my talk on Wednesday night. And he said, "Dad, it's about dinosaurs, not about Jesus. Why do you need it? Well, the reason is, this book is about a dinosaur that is a herbivore, and his egg gets stolen before he's hatched. And this other dinosaur, which I can't remember his name, I must have read the book 40 times, but I can't remember the other dinosaur's name. He steals this egg, and he leaves it with some carnivore, dinosaurs, some tyrannosauruses, and so there has got this herbivore that's hatched amongst carnivores and he senses he's different. Like all the carnivore uh, brothers and sisters that he has, they just want to eat meat. They want to go out on the hunt and they want to kill those people who are actually his original family. And they sense that he's different and he senses that he's different. And for John, he knows that people who have genuinely got hold of who Christ is there will be something naturally, instinctively different about them. They won't want to get involved in the same stuff that other people in the world are getting involved in. He's not naive enough to think that Christians aren't going to get themselves into some problems of sin. We talked about that last week. He said, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate for us if we confess our sins God's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness in fact anybody who thinks they don't don't have any sin they're a liar and the truth isn't in them so he wasn't saying that people shouldn't sin if they're naturally born of God but if they're naturally born of God they should recognize there is something different about them that inclines them to not want to do the things that other people in the world are doing. Let me explain some of the sifting from a different angle. If I just turn now to Matthew 25, you can turn there with me if you wish. Be- the reason I'm going to just go into Matthew here and also reference Ezekiel, although we won't turn to that because it's it would be redundant because... Matthew 25, the passage I'm going to read here, is pretty much a restatement of what Ezekiel says. This sifting is part of what runs through Jesus' teaching, what ran through the experience of the church up until this point and was also happening in, in front of the eyes of the people who were in the church that, that John is writing to. We, we tend to think that the kind of sifting of separating sheep from goats, the good from the bad, the false from the true, the authentic from the inauthentic, is something that happens at this judgment day situation where ultimately all of humanity is gathered before Jesus and there he sets people on the left or on the right, those who have their names written in the Lamb's Book of Life and those who don't. At that point, you know, the idea is, certainly as I conceive it, is you're kind of looking around thinking, am I on the right, am I on the left? Looking around, hopefully, you know, hopefully Bob will be somewhere close by, so I know I'm on the right side of the throne. You know, I'll be safe and all right, Bob's there, we're fine, Alan's, Alan's close by, we're all right, I'm okay. So there's this sense of sifting that we associate with this end-time judgment. But actually, this is something that's going on all the time. And it has a real pastoral implication, which is why I'm going to cover it now. So in Matthew 25, verse 31, it says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory with all the angel, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. And all the nations will be gathered before him. He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. This is a reference to Ezekiel 34 where Ezekiel uh, hears a message from God about how God was going to separate the, the, the sheep which were basically living in, 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 a, in an immoral way, in a sinful way in the context, really, of the leadership of Israel and those who were genuinely following God in an authentic way. There would be a sifting that goes on. And Jesus is referencing that here, or well, certainly Matthew as he records this, this section of material that is talking about when Jesus comes in his glory. Now, again, I messaged to you, uh, mentioned several times in my um, eschatology session that this coming into glory is a reference, of course, to Daniel, which I talked about, Daniel chapter seven, but it's an ascension, not a descension. It's an ascending into glory, this coming into, uh, sitting on his throne in heavenly glory. This is a picture of the Son of Man, Daniel chapter seven, being removed by the Ancient of Days, out from the beasts of the earth, going up and to receive the position of his throne and his power and dominion to rule at the right-hand side of the Ancient of Days. So as I read this, I mean, of course, many of you will disagree with me, that's fine. Um, But this sifting is something that is going on as Jesus sits in his throne of judgment now. He has already taken that position at the right-hand side of the Ancient of Days. So the throwback to Daniel and the Son of Man and this coming in his glory, I see this as an ascension narrative, speaking of Jesus coming into his position to reign and to rule. Now, of course, there will be a time when he descends and he gathers the nations before him, but there is a sense in which this is already going on. And so when we get to John and he's talking about how this experience of some people wanting to align themselves with this new emerging Gnostic teaching and others being confused as to why people are teaching certain things, John explains it this way. So in 1 John 3.10, he says, this is how we know who the children of God are and those who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child nor is anyone who does not love their brother or their sister. He goes on to say, they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. And we are from God. And whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of Falsehood. So, there's a moral test that John presents there. There is a fellowship test. That's the second test. And there is a leadership test. That's the third test. So, the first test is basically saying, if people start to live an immoral life in a persistent dogmatic way, which shows no care or concern for the gospel, then that is one test that this person may well not have had the full experience of salvation, the revelation of the truth. You've got this second piece where he says there was, there was a going. We understand there was probably a church split. And were, we're gonna, when we get into 3 John, partly next week, but mostly the week after we get some more understanding of the fact that there were people who were actively trying to proselytize people from the church and bring them into line with their teaching. And John's saying the fact that these guys went out meant that they were never really part of us. So they were part of them for a while. They were sat in the meetings and at the love feasts and listening to someone tinkle the ivories and play 10,000 Reasons... And for a period of time, for a season, it seemed like they were just a part of the congregation. But eventually their hearts become uncovered and you start to see this sifting happen. And then that third test, that leadership test, uh, John's saying here rather boldly, I don't think arrogantly, but boldly saying that if, you, if these people were listening to us, then that probably would show that they have a right heart. But if they're not listening to us, That's another evidence that they weren't really part of us. I mean, could you really imagine it? If you've got, assuming this one John is written by John the Apostle, the beloved disciple of Jesus, why would you not want to get your teaching directly from him? Particularly as tradition says that he'd taken Mary with him up to Ephesus and she had been part of the, I mean, all the stories that you'd have available to you, then some you know, what we call a proto-Gnostic, somebody who's developing a a teaching. I mean, Gnosticism is just an umbrella term for some types of teaching. It wasn't like they had a central HQ and they got together there and they gave out their edicts and said this is the top ten beliefs of us as Gnostics. It didn't work like that, but it was a shift in theology and there were certain common themes and ideas that went through this Gnostic system of thought. So, John recognizes that there was a sifting going on in the church and they were turning against his authority as a leader. They were disconnecting themselves from the local church and they were living in such a way that indicated that they were carnivores among herbivores. That's how they went about their, their life. But sifting goes on in the experience of people who are genuinely followers of Jesus as well. When we read through the experience of Peter leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus, Jesus says this to him, Peter, the devil wants to sift you as wheat. Sift you as wheat. And he was sifted. What happened was when he denied Jesus three times and he felt all the guilt and the sense of, of, of shame about all of that, the condition of his heart was laid bare. It was easy enough for him to be bold and brave when Jesus is right there with him, but when Jesus is in the dock, in front of a kangaroo court, potentially going to die, and you're by yourself in a campfire, and you're alone, and it's nighttime, and you're not quite sure what's gonna happen next, It was a testing moment, it was a sifting moment, and actually sifting is a good thing. We often think that tough moments or difficult moments or hard seasons are a bad thing because our experience of them feels bad, but those bad moments are often allowed by God to expose the condition of our heart. Where are we at really? where are we at really? And I can't remember who said it. Uh, uh, It was some preacher in the 20th century. I think it was David Wilkinson. And he said that a man or a woman is only what they are on their knees alone before God. Nothing more and nothing less. Once you take somebody away from the support structures and the cultural and, 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 and sort of visceral and, and emotional lift that you get being around people. You get to discover where you are. So actually sifting moments happen in the church, sifting moments happen in our own lives, and there's something actually to be embraced. Because if they happen in a church as they were in the church in Ephesus for John, you were starting to make sure that the weeds and the wheat could be differentiated between. Because the worst thing is if you let the weeds grow alongside the wheat, then the wheat bear less sort of fruitfulness, as it were. That's not the right metaphor for wheat. I don't think what you get from wheat is considered fruit. But those things need to happen. So sometimes when there's a tough season in a church, and you're thinking, what's going on right now? This person's falling out with this person. This thing's going on. Are we under attack? We have to pray. We have to intercede against it. Maybe. And maybe God's allowing that because he needs to just expose some people's hearts and minds and find out really where they're at. Because while things are sitting complacent, you're not really sure what's going on inside. Tough moments reveal the degree of character and maturity that we carry. And looking back now, there are many moments that I prayed that God would quickly expedite me through. Get me out of the other side of this quick. I don't like this. It's uncomfortable. But looking back, with hindsight, you recognize that God can use those moments as ways of maturing you and exposing to you the areas of your life where you need to mature and you need to grow. But in this context, it was happening primarily, this is what John's speaking into, it was happening through the church and there was this teaching behind it. So let's just read some of the text here now because I've talked a lot without actually reading any of the text itself. But just also be thinking with this in mind, if Jesus has gone way back here, and Paul's gone, and Peter's gone, and the other apostles have largely gone, and the temple's now gone, and Jerusalem's in ruins, and you're heading towards the end of that particular century. Part of the question in the church is going to be, where, where, where's, where's Jesus? When's he coming back? How long have we got to kind of hang on in there before he comes back? And so that is... Um, a set of questions that John is not ignorant about, and it comes out through his writing now. So let's read from 1 John chapter two, verse 18. And I'll explain as well how he can faithfully use the word, "This is the last hour." So dear children, this is the last hour." And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now, many antichrists have come. This is how we know that it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going show that none of them belong to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you, all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie comes from the truth." Who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. See that you what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you will also remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised even eternal life. I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. So there's the pastoral problem. He's having to speak into the situation because there are people actively trying to undermine the teaching of the church and draw people uh, along to their point of view. Verse 27, as for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing, but his anointing teaches you about all things, and that anointing is real, not counterfeit. Just as it has taught you, so remain in Him. And now, dear children, continue in Him, so that when He appears, we may be confident and unashamed before Him at His coming. So there, this coming now is not the ascension. Uh, reference to Daniel, this is a a descending, a sense in which what Jesus achieved through his ascension to the right-hand side of the Father becomes active on the earth as he descends to bring in the full reign and rule of God on earth as it is in heaven. So Jesus' ascension, according to Daniel chapter 7, the ascension of the Son of Man, being taken from the beasts of the earth, going to the right-hand side of the Ancient of Days, there to reign and to rule. Jesus is already reigning and ruling. He's already calling the shots. Satan doesn't get to do what he wants. Jesus determines how things are going, Ultimately. But there will come a point, and John knew this, when Jesus would return and that coming would come full circle and that reign and rule which he is now already exercising would be brought to the earth. Verse 29, if you know that uh, he is righteous, you know that everyone does what is right. Everyone who does what is right has been born of him. How great is the love of the Father that he's lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we um, will be has not, uh, not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. What I think is really interesting about John there where he says, uh, what we uh, um, will be has not yet been made known. There was still a sense of mystery, even for John. Again, if this is the same John that was the beloved person who put his head upon the chest of Jesus, there were some parts of what was going to happen that he he didn't know about. He was still in a place of mystery and anticipation along with the congregation. He said, it's exciting, guys. I don't even know. And I've got as close to him as anybody has ever gotten to him. But there's still a sense of mystery to all of this. But the point was that Jesus was coming back. So this word Antichrist, and then we'll go on to that now. This was operating very clearly, as far as John was concerned, through false teaching, this Gnostic teaching, which was getting people off track. It was producing this... Um, counterfeit gospel this counterfeit gospel idea this idea that you gained a sense of um, sort of spiritual enlightenment through revealed knowledge and revelation and esoteric information that you gleaned and eventually you built yourself up in fact as I have done some study the Kabbalah religion which I think Madonna and a few other crackpots in Hollywood adhere to has a similar uh, type of Counterfeit gospel, because there's actually got some rabbinic studies in Kabbalah, which is an odd mix. As I said, Gnosticism isn't a clear cut, well defined um, religion, it's a collection of ideas. But it was coming through in several people who were teaching into the church. Now, for us here at Life Church, if somebody started to come up into the pulpit, and start to give out a load of wacky ideas, they would be out that door faster than you could say gone. They they would be out. And we've tested this before. The church I'm leading now, the West Congregation, for a period of time we were meeting in Great Sankey School and there was this person who called themselves a prophet. It was a female person, called themselves a prophet. And they got up one Sunday morning, and said, you're all idolaters, and God is going to judge you, and your pastor is your idol, and you need to repent, and they went through this whole thing. We were like, "It, it, 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 it was the most surreal experience I've ever had leading a church. I mean, there's been some times I've had to rush and grab the microphone off people, right? That's enough. That's enough of that. I don't think we need to finish those sentences. And uh, I won't tell you what they were, but it was quite funny, but a bit embarrassing as well. Uh, but this particular, t- there was a sense, there was a spirit at work behind this that was quite destructive. And there was a conversation after that meeting with the people that I was leading, that, leading the congregation at the time. We made a decision, we wrote to the person, we explained our position, we said, unless they were to take account of what they said and to go back on what they said, they could no longer attend that church. Attend the church. And at the time, I took a big gulp because I was thinking, wow, this is the first time I felt like I was wearing my big boy pants. Because actually, I'd never told somebody they couldn't come to church before. And then it happened another time with somebody else shortly after that. I think I was going through a sifting experience. And this person who had been involved in witchcraft started to honor during the service to try and go around praying for people. <laughs> praying for people during the service and there was a again another conversation and like okay you mustn't do that if you want to come to church and sit there and receive and hear that's fine but you just can't get up going around and trying to touch people during the service otherwise you have to leave and they said that they wouldn't be held back by that and I said well then you need to because I'm going to stand at the door next Sunday to make sure that you don't come into church and if you do try, and I'm going to call the police. So eventually, we stood, we stood our ground, and they didn't come uh, back to church. So there are times when you have to stand your ground, and it happens in church where people are saying things and doing things, and for the sake of people in the church, you cannot allow for some misguided sense of inclusivity, allow does any old Tom, Dick, or Harry, or Kate, Sally, or Sue To come in and just teach and say and do what they want in church. You have to draw a line, you have to set a boundary. But for many of us, that influence isn't coming from the pulpit primarily, it's coming a different way. Listen to how John says this as he develops this Antichrist teaching into 1 John 4. Now, because we just read from 1 John 2 into 1 John 3, but now into 1 John 4, he says, But every spirit that does not acknowledge that Jesus, that does not acknowledge Jesus, uh, it says is not from God. Every but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. I thought I copied and pasted this from the internet, I thought it can't be wrong. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and is even now already in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world. And the world listens to them. When I read that, I thought it was really interesting that this heresy was just a particular expression of what he saw this spirit of antichrist this sort of demonic counter narrative to the gospel that was already at work in the world was out it, 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 there was a sense of people who weren't in church would agree with a lot of the stuff that was being said and that's not just an issue of teaching but just of, of values and principles and ideas and where do we get a lot of our values and principles, ideas? Stuff through TV, stuff that we watch. And it was another reminder to me to make sure I am using a filter when I'm watching stuff on the TV. I'm not talking about the overtly sinful stuff, but just stuff where there's a storyline that seems to promote a type of value system, a set of principles, a set of ideas about relationships or about marriage or about truth that is not in line with the gospel because i don't accept heretics in the pulpit why would i accept the same ideas coming through the story on my tv And this is not me kind of thumping the pulpit saying hey guys you know switch your tv off and open the bible that's that's a good thing but it is a wake up and a call to say, make sure that you know what you're watching is in line with the word of God. Because those values for the church in the West, for us, largely won't come through people in the church. It will come through other ways that we will be influenced by that same spirit that is at work. So that's a, a challenge to us. But how does John reconcile, though, that this is the last hour? And just put your hand up if you were not at the, at the uh, eschatology seminar. Put your hand up. One, two, three. Okay. So, just, just for those who, who weren't there, how can John say this is the last hour? It has a sense of imminence to the return of Jesus. Either he was just a little bit overexcited... Or that hour was a really blooming long hour. And maybe we just, you know, the day of the Lord is like a thousand years, a thousand years is like a day. Now, remember, this is happening here, not here. And I'd mentioned in the eschatology sessions that this 70 AD period was, as far as the early church were concerned initially anyway, that was the date that fulfilled Matthew 24. The wars, the rumors of wars, the famines, the stuff, the earthquakes that were going on, looking at Roman sources, r- looking at uh, other later Christian sources that were writing in that later period, looking back, going, this was an answer to Jesus's, uh, this was a, um, um, a fulfillment of what Jesus said in Matthew 24. And at the time, Christians recognizing that that was upon them wanting to escape Jerusalem because they knew something big was coming. But we're talking here. So is John just thinking this thing is still lasting? Well, possibly. But one way that we can conceive of this, that I'm going to offer to you, one way that we can conceive of this, this last hour is that a lot of the Day of the Lord vocabulary that is used is often used of God's judgment on a particular nation, on a particular empire. So you have days of the Lord for Egypt, days of the Lord for Babylon, days of the Lord for Assyria, days of the Lord where those nations get to a point where God has to intervene and call it a day and judge them. This was the kind of beginning of the day of the Lord for the Jewish people. They get the destruction of the temple but then going on slightly past that, you have this resurgence of militant Judaism, you have the bar Kokhba revolt, and you have Hadrian as well, and what he began to do to um, really make sure that he uh, destroyed what was left from this destruction of the temple and large parts of Jerusalem that have been destroyed along with it. That happened in the 120s. And after that, then you get the installment of Palestine, rather than it being Israel and the Jewish people's land, you get this start of the Palestinian land being recognized, and Hadrian uh, having a temple to himself, uh, as well as to Zeus, on the Temple Mount. There is some... There is some credit to the argument that this sense of last hour is in some way fulfilled in that, in this final closing period of that part of Jewish history with the destruction of, partly destruction of Jerusalem, total destruction of the temple, and then this final part there, this bar Kokhba revolt, and then there is Hadrian, and then there is the clamping down on what happened to the Jewish people and the final end to that land being considered Jewish land, it was then Palestine. So one way that we can look at those and say, well, John has not erred in what he has said when he's saying it's the last hour. Was he right then to then go on to say, well, we can expect Jesus to come? I don't think he was wrong to expect Jesus to come at that point. Essentially, Jesus didn't come, but it was the last hour Uh, in that period of history, and the expectation would be that Jesus would return after that, which, of course, he didn't. So I just offer that to you as one way of figuring out how to handle this last-hour language, because this is 2,000 years ago. So either you have to reimagine what that hour looked like, or you just say this is a kind of a general phraseology saying this is the last chapter, and it was a long chapter. In fact, on Peter's... Uh, sermon on Acts of the Day of Pentecost, he talks about the Spirit of God will be poured out in the last days, referencing what was going on in front of people's eyes. So he was using that last days and the language of Joel to talk about the fact that they were in the last days at that point because the Holy Spirit was being poured out. That was the evidence that they were in the last days. So the last days, the last hour, um, certainly we have been in it since the ascension of Jesus and the beginning of the church and the dissension of the Holy Spirit, whether that is one way of answering the question as to whether John had kind of erred there, I'll leave that with you. Okay, just a couple more points, because I said I was going to be quicker tonight. Another interesting thing as we read through this final part of 1 John, not only is this spirit of Antichrist at work in the world, He goes on to say in 1 John 5, 4 to 5, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, I've had my fill of health, wealth, and blessing teaching over the years, but there are verses like this which have been used as a pretext for Christians to expect that they should have some sort of Uh, um, inheritance in the things of this world because they're the overcomers of the things of this world. Almost like taking the, the spoils of Egypt with you, you know, that you can have lay claim because you're an overcomer over the world. So you should have the things of the world as your own possessions. But this term the world for John is not about the money of the world and it's not about the lifestyle of the world that you could expect I've lived in Monaco for a few years I've seen what people would describe as the best of that particular lifestyle that you could have he's not talking about you overcoming and receiving that he's saying that the spirit of this world with the lust and the pride and all the stuff that goes along with you can have victory over that and the only way you're ever going to get a victory over that is to have the work of Christ in you the people in the world they can't get victory over that because that that nature is still within them, inclining itself to do those things. The only way you can live a life that goes against the current of culture, that goes against the current of the world, that goes against the current of the things the world tells you that you ought to have as your standards and the way of living, the only way you can live counter to that and transcend that, live against that and above it, to get victory over those desires, those inclinations and that 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 torrent of ideas that comes against the church all the time is through believing in Jesus and taking his life into you. So the type of victory, the type of success for the believer is not attaining some sort of high position in the world by its own standards. It's about not having to succumb to the stuff that the world tells you is important by being living against that And be able to overcome that work of that culture in you. And the only way that you can do that is to have the work of Christ in you. The final piece of this and then we'll bring this to a close. He goes on to say just after that. That this is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and the blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three things that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three are in agreement. The first few times I ever used to read that passage, I think, what on earth is John going on about? three things that are in agreement. I don't need to go too much into commentaries and so forth for you here. I think the message translation uh, is helpful in its interpreting of those words uh, for us. It basically says that the spirit, the water, and the blood are the spirit, baptism, and crucifixion. So those Three things at work, the work of the Holy Spirit, baptism into Christ and into his body, the church, and the work of the cross. These are the three things that really are kind of foundational parts of us and our lives as Christians. And then he goes on to say this, and this is where we close today. This is the testimony, in essence, that God gave us eternal life. The life is in his Son. So whoever has the Son has life. Whoever rejects the Son rejects life. And so as we get to the end of 1 John, and John brings it into a close, he's basically setting up this comparison between the world and its life and true life through Jesus. Life of the world, you know, parties living in a certain kind of moral way that people in the world would think was quite viable and almost honor- honorary. He's basically saying, unless you have the son, unless your life revolves around Jesus, you don't actually have life at all. All of that stuff is not actually life. It's not actually living. All that you're doing is existing within a deception and a lie, which at some point will come crumbling down when Jesus comes back. If you want to be sure that you genuinely have life, you can only know that if your life centers around Jesus, that that baptism, that blood, that cross, that crucifixion, that work of the Holy Spirit that is, a, that is part of the evidence and, and, and the, the means by which we can enter that life, That is the way that we can genuinely have life. And the challenge to us as the church, and I leave this with us, is what does our life center around? There are times when our, our, our inclination is to look around us with envy at the way other people are living sometimes. I think, man, if I could just have a little bit more of the world that they have, in my experience, I would be better. Looking at your salary level or amount of holidays you've had in the last 10 years... And for John and his community, he didn't want them to feel that they were missing out on life because they weren't getting imbibed in the things of this world. Because there were a lot of entrapment and snares doing that. They needed to make sure that their life centered around Jesus because he was the way, he is the truth, and he was the life. And a life that is not centered on him is no life at all. By definition, it can't be anything. It's just an imitation of life, a poor imitation of life. So he brings it in in this final chapter, not only uh, we mentioned last week, talking about certain sins that were fatal, which is just his way of saying that if somebody isn't walking in the truth, they will live a type of life that is fatal for them because they're just working out of their unregenerate nature. But he also wants to make sure that the church are centered, always centered on Jesus. So next week, we will then move on to 2 John, where he talks to a particular lady, and we'll discuss whether he's talking to a particular person or that is code for a church. And we move from what is a message in 1 John, really, a kind of a sermon and a message repeating certain themes about light and dark and truth and error. And then he starts to speak pastorally into the life of a local church. And it's only a short letter, so it won't take us. We can read a whole whole book next week in one sitting. So we will do that, and then then we'll move on to John chapter 3. And then you've done all of them. You've seen with the eschatology lectures, basically all of the work, really, along with John's gospel, of course, that went on around this period of time. So you see the final closing experience of the church before it shifted seasons, and the apostles had then all gone, and then that next generation of leadership, it was time for them to carry the baton, to carry the mantle of leadership. But this significant period of time, as Scripture was drawing to a close, we're witnessing that through the book of Revelation, eschatology, through one 2 and 3 John and of course John's gospel also we've come to the end of this week's message we hope you've been impacted and inspired keep up to date with everything that's happening by visiting our website at www.lifechurchority.com